and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Emily Gregg. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Dr. Alex Gardel, an assistant professor and researcher at Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine with cross appointments to the Biomedical Engineering and Cancer Biology here at Wake Forest. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So you received your biomedical engineering degree from John Hopkins in 2005 and then received your PhD in bioengineering from University of Utah in 2010. Uh, before coming to W Firm as a postdoc fellow. We were wondering if you could start off with telling us a little bit about how you first got interested in biomedical engineering. Yeah, it was kind of, an maybe not an accident, but I was interested in chemistry and got like straight A's in, I don't know, level one chem, then AP chem in high school. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, naturally I'll just be a chemistry major. And that was kind of at the, so that would have been, I graduated high school 2001. So that was, there was a few BME programs in the country, but not that many. And so I got into Hopkins, so <clears throat> that was by far the best school I got into. So it was kind of a no brainer to go there, but I was a chemistry major. And as a arts and science college student, I had to take, I don't know, foreign languages. So I remember I took, Italian, which after five years of Spanish, I kept confusing the two. Yes. So I was just like, oh, I got to get out of this this uh, arts and sciences thing. And so at that time, like my dad had been telling me about biomedical engineering, and this is like the whole new thing in science. And um, at some point, I just reached out to the department and asked if I could transfer in, and they said, Yeah, sure. Um, and then I found out the next year. It was so full, you, nobody could ever transfer in after that. So wow. I kind of lucked out. Um, but that's how I got into it. And then I, it was, um, it was an interesting experience. And, you know, Hopkins obviously is one of the more competitive BME programs in the country, which is great. But one of the reasons is because about 50% of those engineering students are also pre-meds. So it's like right. hyper competitive, yeah. which I didn't want to be part of right so you know there was kind of a love-hate relationship but in the end it was a really good experience because um to be quite frank then when I started my PhD all the coursework was a piece of cake <laughs> you were well prepared yeah absolutely <laughs> so we also know that you're a pioneer in the field of bioprinting so you are working on biomaterials development very early on in your training mm -hmm. um what was that experience like, and how did you translate that into your area of focuses now? Um, I guess at the time, I, I would never have, I, I don't know, still pioneer sounds a bit weird. Um, and I know there's, you know, competitors in the field who think they pioneered everything. <laughs> but I think um, it was it was a really great experience. Um, I remember the day I interviewed with my 2B PhD advisor, he said, hey, I need a bio materials person looks you've wor worked with this one person at Hopkins do you want to be in my lab and I thought well this sounds pretty cool and he said we have five years uh, 20 million dollars of funding between like four or five institutions to 
create this organ printing technology. And I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely. So, but because I was- That's a great uh, cocktail (laughs) conversation. So what do you work on? Eh, Organ printing. Yeah. (laughs) And and the the funny thing was he was my first interview during my visit to that program. And I had a day and a half of other interviews that I really should have just skipped because none of them were that (laughs) interesting. Yeah. Mm But, uh, yeah, it was good. We worked with um, Gabor Forgotch. He was actually the, the, the head PI of the whole consortium of this um, NSF-funded, uh, what was it, FIBR, Frontiers in Integrated Biological Research, or something like that. I can't remember the exact acronym. Um, so it was Gabor Forgotch who were kind of leading sort of the biophysics end of the of, – and then a lot of the hardware development, um, you know, that – we were using, just like Dr. Atala talks about, actual inkjet printers that were modified to print <laughs> cells and things like that, uh, which was not fun. Um, and uh, then we worked with some other folks at um, Medical University of South Carolina, including uh, Vladimir Mironov, who was one of the sort of the conceptional pioneers of a lot of this stuff. I guess the other thing is we called it organ printing back then because we thought, well, you know, we've got $20 million. In five years, we're going to be printing actual organs. We realized, well, no, we're printing biological things. So mm-hmm. I think that's where it turned into bioprinting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there still exists the old organ printing website from the University of Missouri where, where Gabor was. It's uh, pretty <laughs> outdated. But, um, but, you know, we were developing sort of the first materials that could be not printed because I think um, Thomas Boland's group was actually – doing some of that but they were inkjet printing which was more patterning and we were building 3d things Mm -hmm. um which are very different in what those materials what those properties have to be like so no it was it was a great opportunity and you know i got some great publications out of it and some good some awesome networking like i still see gabor every now and then and he's a he's a great guy and he's obviously created some successful companies so Mm -hmm. yeah great So we also know that you're a PI on an advanced manufacturing project, and your team's working on creating a universal bioink. Um, what will this bioink include, and how do you really see it moving uh, the field forward? Um, yeah, no, I, this this has been a great project to have here. Um, I guess without getting too technical, I think it, there's there's a good and bad side to what I'm about to say. Uh, the cost of the hardware that people use for bioprinting has come down so dramatically in the past five years or so. Um, back to when I was in a, doing my PhD, um, like I said, we were hacking inkjet printers, or uh, I think I hacked a, fra- a chemi- chemistry fraction collector mm-hmm. at some point um, and bought little dials from Radio Shack to control it, right? That was kind of what we were working with. Um, Unless you had a $20 million grant from NSF, you could buy a quarter of a million dollar printer from Enscript, which they're still around. I think they do mostly like printing for robotics and other stuff, not so much bioprinting. So it was really limited in who could actually do these types of um, this type of research. Uh, we found a $3,000 open source 3D printer um, called the Fabit Home, which 
you could order all the parts from some tiny little company, but then you had to build the whole thing. And luckily there was this open source like wiki page that had, I would say 80% of all the instructions. <laughs> so like Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, so we, we ended up getting one of those so we could do a lot of the same stuff that the big quarter of a million dollar printer was doing. At least we could do like bio ink, biomaterials testing. So in any case, since then, um, you know, there's these companies, uh, Alevi, formerly BioBots, Cell Inc., Advanced Solutions, which we have, you know, a printer from each of those companies so we can see how our materials work in different, different hardware platforms. But really, almost any lab that has, you know, even halfway decent research funding now can own a bioprinter. Um, and same with small companies. And so that's great because it allows everybody to sort of push the field forward. But at the same time, uh, there's no standards in this field. Uh, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Um, I did a lot of my PhD work on hyaluronic acid biomaterials and gelatin biomaterials. So naturally, the first bioinks we started working with were HA and gelatin versus um, some of the guys right here downstairs did a lot of their work with gelatin and alginate, so they keep doing that. And that's not to say what they're doing is wrong or anything, but you see that kind of across feel the field and when you go to scientific conferences everybody's got their favorite bio ink and all it is is them trying to jam in their favorite biomaterial into a printer mm -hmm. um, and none of these materials were actually developed for bioprinting so they don't have the right properties so what we're trying to do is create you know based on a lot of these materials that are actually native to the human body materials that have properties that make them printable on any platform so the end user can just plug and play um, ha have actual standards across industry so that when we get to the point where we're bioprinting, you know, tissues and organs for human use, it'll hopefully be easier. Once we get our first one through FDA approval, the second one will be built with almost the same kind of material on the same types of printers so that it's that much easier for them to get through and just fast forward everything. Um, so that's sort of the, the overall goal of, of the program, I'd say, at this point. We're not responsible for printing tissue products for human use, but we're responsible for creating the technologies that can help push it there. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a really exciting uh, program. Well, another exciting project that you're working on is Tumor on a Chip, which is a miniature organoid system to test drug screening and disease modeling. So how will this technology lead to maybe a more personalized cancer care? Yeah, so this is um, not, I think all of our projects are exciting, but this is probably the <laughs> one I'm excited about the most, um, <clears throat> even though it's one of the least well-funded projects in, in our lab at the moment. Uh, hopefully that's changing in the next few months. We'll see uh, what the NIH says about it. Um, so we've been doing um, what we call organoids, and uh, probably listeners to this podcast know by now what organoids are, I would imagine. Um, but for anyone who doesn't know, uh, they're essentially miniature organs, miniature tissues, so we call them organoids. Um, and uh, these things can exist in like your typical well plates that you culture cells in 2D on, but we can also put them on these uh, microfluidic chips. So they're, if you envision like a microchip that has electrical circuits connecting the resistors and motors and um, batteries and stuff, 
it's like that, except you have fluid connecting a liver and a heart and et cetera, et cetera. And so you can join these things together and do these really interesting multi-tissue studies, which we've published on, I think, last August or September. We have another paper. Uh, it's actually with the boss down the hall. Um, <laughs> but that should be coming out pretty soon. Um, <clears throat> so we've been really good at engineering healthy tissues for these organoids. But then... You know, the goal of W Firm being how do we take these technologies and uh, impact patients' lives clinically? Uh, we thought, well, what if we could actually create a disease model and figure out using that disease model what treatment is best for a given patient? So, uh, myself and Dr. Shai Soker here have been creating tumor organoids for the past five or six years, but initially just with these generic cell lines, so not representative of an actual patient. Um, and we've published a bunch of papers on it, but we got to the point where we took that sort of W firm mission statement and thought, how do we turn this into something clinical? So what we've been doing for the past, uh, I guess in conceptually the last three years, but really in practice just the year, last year and a half is, um, with, in collaboration with surgeons and oncologists at our cancer center is uh, when there's a, a surgery for a cancer patient to try to take out as much of a tumor, um, or sometimes it's just a biopsy procedure for diagnostics, um, we actually get part of that tumor to create organoids from that tumor. Um, and, and this sort of dovetails with the precision medicine program here at the cancer center. And these programs are across the entire country and probably world, actually. Um, and the idea there is through genetic screening, um, they'll send out part of the tumor to some third-party company who genet does genetic screening. The idea is to identify mutations uh, or different genetic targets that then you can customize the therapy for that patient um, you know, on an individual basis. So... It's a great concept, um, but there's this uh, paper that my surgeon uh, collaborator, uh, Costas Vatanopoulos, always likes to cite, and I've started <laughs> citing it too because it's pretty effective. Um, of all the patients that go into these precision medicine programs, only 11% actually have a change in their uh, treatment program, and only 3% actually have an improved outcome. Mm. So the concept makes so much sense, right? tailoring therapy yeah. to the patient based on their tumor's genetic sequences, mm -hmm. but in reality, it doesn't always work that well. So what we thought was, can we, you know, when you take that tumor out, you send it for genetic screening, well, mm -hmm. send half of it to us, we'll create 100, you know, tumor organoids or miniature tumors, and we'll run actual chemotherapeutic screens in the lab and see what does the best job at killing the tumor. And kind of by merging that with um, the genetic screening data, can we do a better job at picking the right therapy? Um, and so it's been a hard sell because this is very different than like your traditional cancer uh, kind of research in medicine. But I think we've started gaining a lot of traction uh, we're having grants that are starting to score better at NIH, which is great. Mm -hmm. But we're also getting tons of buy-in from a lot of clinicians who are, you know, they're like, hey, I do head and neck cancer. Can mm -hmm. we, you create organoids for us? Mm -hmm. uh, we do glioblastoma. Can you do it for us? And so we're stretched a little thin, <laughs> to be honest, but it's, it's good to kind of finally feel like 
the technology's validated a little bit. And I mean, the whole concept, if you're able to test, let's say, five different um, anti-cancer treatment regimens and come up with, okay, this is going to kill 90% of that mm -hmm. cancer. I mean, that's a real hard number that clinicians can then look at and say, well, this makes the most sense rather than just flipping the coin. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so uh, th that strategy, I think it really will gain traction. Yeah, and we actually have, uh, and I've told this at several presentations over the last like three weeks, uh, a really great anecdote that shows the potential here. Um, <coughs> I, I'm not allowed to know any actual personal information about the patients that you know we receive these samples for sure. from. I think from like the HIPAA rules and all that. Yeah. But I know enough to tell this story, which is um, there was a patient over at the cancer center. It's about 50 years old, which is young, you know, for cancer. Yeah. You know, uh, he's got kids apparently. Yeah. Apparently, he's in great shape, other than having cancer. Sure. <laughs> um, and so he's had melanoma. Uh, on an arm, uh, and he's in the last several years had five surgeries to cut out tumors. Um, they've melanoma is one of the few cancers where immunotherapy is something that people use now. Um, now, those are those drugs that go in and kind of uncamouflage the tumor from the immune system, and the yeah. immune system then goes and tries to kill the tumor. Okay. So, um I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about how we do it because of IP, but we figured out how to integrate aspects of the immune system mm -hmm. with the tumor organoids mm -hmm. so we can actually look at T-cell activation and how the immune system would actually go in and potentially kill the tumor. Mm -hmm. So in other melanoma patients, we've done this and we've shown we can actually get immunotherapy to activate T-cells in the organoids, not, not in a mouse or anything like that, and kill the tumor. Mm -hmm. Now, different patients are different, different tumors are different, so some people don't respond to those therapies. This guy's been through uh, two different immunotherapies with no response, and those drugs cost you know one or two, three hundred thousand dollars for wow. a full cycle of it. So a lot of money's been spent and nothing's working. Yeah. So we had a, one of my he's a, was a master's student, now a PhD student, uh, read somewhere about an alternative therapy that is more often used in colorectal cancer, but that started being used in some melanoma patients if that you have the right mu mutation. Well, in our organoid system, it killed 60% or so of, of wow. the tumor cells, whereas those immunotherapies did nothing, just wow. like in the patient. And so <clears throat> I sent the data to the sur our surgeon who ran down the hall with it to the doctor and said, you gotta get this guy on this other drug or these this cocktail, and legally, you can't do that because there's no, um, I guess, FDA-approved diagnostic data that says that that other drug sh might work. So they had to send out more samples for genetic testing. They did. Uh, it came back that the guy actually had the right mutation to qualify him for the therapy. Oh, wow. And <laughs> yeah, I like to kind of say this in jest a little bit, but our... Uh, running on fumes research program here identified this therapy, you know, a month and a half before the billion dollar precision medicine program did. So I think there's some potential. So the guy's actually on the therapy. Um, 
a week after he started, he emailed my collaborator and said, hey, the lumps are getting smaller and I can move my arm again. Wow. And two weeks out, he went in for a checkup and it's like actually the tumors are actually going away. And so it sounds almost too good to be true because I thought mm -hmm. two weeks, like that's mm -hmm. not, that doesn't sound right. But apparently for the right patient, these types of drugs can actually work that fast. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, that's our best example. So it doesn't always turn out that way. But I think with the right support, the right resources, we can take this technology and actually um, start to make differences in people's lives, which is the whole, this is why, why we do what we do, right? So. Yeah, that's a great testament to how personalized treatment can make something not only happen, but happen fast. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, in closing, we know your role at WFIRM includes playing a large part in uh, graduate training programs, um, including postdoc research fellows, um, graduate students, summer scholars, uh, and even the public through our annual regenerative medicine uh, essentials course, which will be coming up in June. We're wondering if you could just maybe highlight some of your experience, um, and do you have any advice for young scientists that might be listening to this podcast that might want to get into this exciting field of regenerative medicine and how to how to prepare to be competitive? Um, I think I think the main thing is to find uh, programs that are that have a good name, have a good um, track record in research but that are probably affordable. <laughs> um, so uh, growing up in New England um, and being doing quite well in high school and graduating with a good GPA, it was always like, well, if you have awesome grades, you're going to go to an Ivy League school or something closer. Yeah. You just didn't look at state schools. It's just ingrained yeah, in, right? yeah. And granted, I think some of the state schools up there are not as competitive as a lot of the larger state schools across the country, mm -hmm. be maybe because there's these more prestigious research schools. So I never cast my net that wide. Uh, I did apply to a lot, several Ivy League schools, didn't get in. Um, because my guidance counselor told me I probably should. But, you know, I, I went to Hopkins, which was a great school. But fortunately, my parents were very good financial planners. Um, and uh, we only had to take out some loans. It wasn't like, you know, because mm -hmm. it's like $50,000 a year mm -hmm. now or even higher mm -hmm. um, to go to those types of schools. But um, looking at grad schools, I realized, wow, there's like all these amazing research programs and departments at schools that I didn't even think about when I was uh, in high school. So, you know, I ended up going to University of Utah, uh, partially because I wanted to ski for five years while there I was doing go. my PhD. Yeah. I said, I figured if I'm going to be in school for five more years, you know, I've got to have some fun. <laughs> have fun. So that, that's another tip, I guess, is make sure you go somewhere where you have a good time, too. But, um, you know, I went there because they had a killer bioengineering program. It's essentially the same as biomedical engineering. The, those titles are kind of swappable. Uh, and it's actually one of the first programs, I believe, because I think that's where they invented dialysis. Hmm. Um, and some of the first artificial hearts, too. So they had a killer bioengineering research program. And not every program at that school is great, you know, by any means. But I think you see the same thing at a lot of other state schools. Um, I mean, Penn State, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Ohio, 
uh, many of the California and, and North Carolina state schools have fantastic engineering and science programs yeah. and for the fraction of the cost that it would cost to go to a private school. So if I had to do it all again, I mean, I'm pretty happy with the way sure. things worked out, sure. but I would certainly have looked at like, you know, UNC Chapel Hill, UCLA, um, UCSD for undergrad, you know, and, and other schools as well. So I think that's something that, you know, at least keep in mind that you can find a fantastic program and even and just as important like an advisor or, or mentor um, who you know you may not think that oh this is a powerhouse school it might not have Ivy League pedigree but you can get a hell of an education um, for again a fraction of the cost um, so that was one thing that you know I, <clears throat> I've definitely thought a lot about especially now that not that my my girls are like anywhere near going to college uh, <laughs> 13 or 14 years from now but like yeah you got to start planning right yeah. <laughs> especially when yes. private schools are 50 60 thousand dollars a year <laughs> so um go to you know i'm gonna tell them to go to unc <laughs> save their money for the skiing right yeah right save yeah money. <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah so i think that's one thing that like and that's you know more of a logistics sort of thing yeah. um important though yeah 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 but you know even within my group I see very different I don't know personalities in students and um, I think that I'm someone who can get along with people pretty easily but I know when I was in grad school there were people who had to switch labs two years in because they just could not get along with their advisor so pers personal relations is really important and that's why a lot of grad programs have rotations where you kind of meet people. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, with my graduate program, you did a rotation, and you rotated at at least two different labs. Yeah, see, we didn't, um, and I lucked out. <laughs> you got a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would highly advocate for, yeah. for being able to do I actually started early so that I could get in on a – um, laboratory rotation before I even started classwork. Oh, wow. Um, so that, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's actually a good point, too. Um, regardless if you're doing a rotation or not, once you're in, once you've graduated from, from undergrad, uh, if your advisor will, your future advisor or potential rotation labs will let you show up in July rather than September, that means you can get two months of research experience yeah. under your belt when you're not, you know, eyeballs deep in classwork, <laughs> writing exactly. papers, yeah. you know, so um, I, I didn't get in two months early, but I got in about a month early, which definitely helped me sort of learn some of the basic yeah. technologies that my lab was working with. Right. Um, so I think time, putting in the time is definitely helpful. Great. Yeah. We, uh, we appreciate you coming in and speaking with us. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.